episode 116 of the Vincast, I chat with Brian Walsh, former chief winemaker of Yalumba Vintners in South Australia and now chairman of Wine Australia. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, I guess it's more like a welcome back to the show after uh, quite a, a period of time that I haven't been releasing any episodes. Uh, unfortunately, I've been uh, very, very busy with uh, with work and also, you know, making some wine again this year. Uh, but probably most importantly, uh, the arrival of my son uh, Oliver who I am really, really happy uh, that, of course, you know, he's in my life and, uh, of course, is the most important thing to me. Uh, and so, unfortunately, I had to uh, have different priorities. But um, I'm super excited to be able to release some new episodes uh, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to fit in some more recordings very soon uh, to share some more great uh, wine stories from people behind the wines that you enjoy. Um, but I think probably one of the most exciting guests that I've ever had on the show uh, was I, I was able to record with when he was recently in Melbourne uh, during the uh, Top 50 um, Restaurants of the World uh, Award ceremony. It was held in Melbourne the first time um, that was in, in Australia. I think it was on the second time it was outside of London. Uh, and there were you know some of the world's best uh, sommeliers here as well and one Australia were uh, they, they put together a fantastic program for them to teach them about um, you know the history, uh, you know some of the, the the iconic Australian wines, but also the dynamic nature and the changing face of Australian wine. Uh, and Brian Walsh, the chairman of Wine Australia, was in town and was very generous to uh, share some time with me to to uh, to actually talk about his background and 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 what his input in philosophy is as far as Wine Australia. So I really do hope you enjoy my chat with Brian. Uh, he's an incredible uh, person. You know, he won the Lenovans Award for contributions to the Australian wine industry uh, in 2016. And so uh, I really did uh, learn a lot from his uh, story. So stick around until the end so you can find out how to get in touch with uh, with both of us to, uh, to share your impressions with the show. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. So I'm uh, I'm very honoured to be joined uh, today by uh, Brian Walsh, the uh, the chairman of Wine Australia, and I'm really thrilled that he was able to find some time during a a pretty hectic week here in Melbourne with um, some of the top sommeliers of the world uh, during Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. So thank you very much, Brian, for making some time. Uh, my pleasure, James. Great to be here. Uh, Brian, I uh, I always ask my uh, my guest at the start of every episode um, if they can remember the first interaction that they had with wine that kind of made them think about it in a different way and thought that maybe that's something that they'd want to do longer term, you know, as a career? Um, mine was a little bit organic in as much as I started work um, as a laboratory assistant um, in a winery that was Chateau Ronella back in it was where Hardy's headquarters now is. Yeah. Um, and without necessarily at the time thinking this was going to be a career, it was a, almost a temporary job while the incumbent went away to Roseworthy to do the enology course. And so my job was doing sulfur tests and alcohols and all those things and generally acting as a dog's body yeah. for the production manager. Yeah. Um, but what also one of my jobs was setting up the trials, the, or the, the trial blends and all the tastings for the 
for the winemaker and the then managing director who was also a winemaker. And so I'd set these up and then I'd be in the adjacent room behind you know, through a sliding door and I'd listen to the listen to them discussing the wines. Sounds a bit like, it, sounds <laughs> a bit like a wine show. Like, <laughs> like you were the steward. Yeah, I was, yeah, <laughs> you was a bit like a steward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you'd pour the wines and you'd, go yeah. and you'd sort of listen into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So that, you, that I wasn't included in the conversation other than I was eavesdropping. Right. But then after they'd left, then I'd go in to clean up and then I'd go through and see if I could pick up what they were talking about and understand the wines themselves. So ah. it was almost a self-taught thing. And then after about... Um, you know, several months, I suppose, I thought, I really enjoyed this. I really like the, the whole thing about putting wines together and seeing if one and one can equal three and and the tasting and understanding what's going on. So more from a sort of a scientific technical side? Uh, no, it wasn't really that scientific. I didn't um, I didn't have a, um, a tertiary degree or anything. It was just more the, um, the flavour and the texture and, and understanding, you know, what they were trying to achieve. And that, so... After about six months, I then said to the company, well, maybe um, I wouldn't mind going off to Roseworthy as well and doing a winemaking course and um, and would they consider supporting me? And um, at the time, it didn't suit suit them to do that. And so... Um, that's, that's a very um, politically correct way of saying it. It's a very, very diplomatic way of saying it. <laughs> well, well, I guess it was, you know, I mean, they had no obligation to do that. Um, yeah. but, um, but they'd already done it with somebody else and that didn't work out. Um, satisfactory because in the end he didn't come back to work so I thought oh they probably thought no, a bit gun once, shy. once bitten twice shy yeah. so um, so uh, at, I don't think the ripe old age of 20 or 19 I think I thought oh well I might move on then so I left for a while and uh, did some labouring work down in the in the almond orchards of Wollonga uh, near, near where I lived and then um, eventually just went back to, to visit the some of my mates in the cellar there and uh, my former boss said can you help us out a little bit for vintage? Yeah. And as they say, the rest is history. I didn't, didn't leave the wine industry after that. And that was, um, so it's all be, be 50 years next year that I've been actually in wine. Wow. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. Did you grow up um, in, in that area? In- I grew up uh, in a little town called Aldinga, which is just um, on the coastal side of Willunga. And Willunga on the southern side of McLaren Vale Township. So it's all in that. Uh, McLaren Vale region, so right. I played footy against McLaren Vale and Wollonga, or I played for Wollonga in fact, but uh, yeah, my folks had a pub, we had a little country pub, okay. was, uh, these days it's fairly well developed with housing and, uh, and nearby beaches. A bit too well developed if you asked some wine producers. <laughs> True, uh, but I think they're trying to contain most of the development to what they call the coastal side of the South Road yep. to leave um, some agricultural Reserve mm-hmm. for uh, um, for vines. Although when I was young, there were more um, almonds and vines, but eventually the almond growing went further up into the Riverland regions, right? Where, okay. where there was more water available. Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so at that time, um, with the pub, was there a reasonably thriving wine industry, and were people like drinking wine, or was it still fairly well, agricultural a, in well, style? It, Wine, uh, as we know it today, wasn't a big part of the uh, local um, the local beverage diet. Um, uh, in fact, from a young age, I think I was probably twelve, eleven, or twelve. I used to sort of man the little um, a little bottle department that we had at the pub, which only really opened on um, holiday weekends and and those sort of things. That we didn't have enough business to actually run a bottle department, but. 
during the holiday period because we're near a beach, uh, uh, lovely beaches, Port Wollonga and Aldinga Beach, very popular places in the summer and Easter and so on. Mm. And all our shelves were stacked with sherries, cream sherries, sweet sherries, dry sherries, wine cocktails, ports and all those sort of things. And if somebody asked for a bottle of red or white, that was out to the back and I had to go and <laughs> find a couple. There was a choice of three or four different red wines that, um, that people would, you know, would want to buy. Right. So it wasn't part of the staple. You know, we would find it. In fact, there were no restaurants in the McLarenvale region. Um, the nearest thing would be, you know, a, a caravan selling steak sandwiches outside some of the pubs. You know, that was the, if you wanted to eat out. So, so, so the, the pubs wouldn't necessarily have No, pubs either. didn't generally do meals. Um, they might, I mean, we used, mum, mum and dad used to do them for by arrangements. And of course, if you had guests staying in the hotel, you know, you put on a meal for them. But right. there was no real restaurant culture at all. Yeah. And so in the wine, when we got involved in the wine industry, we used to do our own things, you know, all the wine makers would get together and either informally or formally through some group like the Bacchus Club or something or the old beef steak and burgundy, those sort of things. People would get together and and go to somebody's home or on, on the weekend and, you know, arrange some really good food and wine because there was nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Out. You didn't, didn't make it right yourself. So things have changed dramatically in that, in that time span. You know? Do you remember what it was that kind of made you think about just, you know, temporarily going to work for Shadow and Allah and, you know, um, working in, in, a, in a lab of all places? Um, did look, did it you was, hear about was, the job? Or would, no, was it look, advertised? it was pure. Well, yes, it was advertised. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in rushing off to work, t- to be honest. I'd, um, um, I was, um, you know, le- left school and was mucking around and, doing a bit of surfing and bits and pieces and, oh, yeah. and my mother would actually you know um, find little jobs in the local paper and put rings around them and leave them on the kitchen table for me to consider and so I was uh, my dad did that for a while <laughs> so um, uh, I actually went for one job you know working for a hotel broker which and who knows where that might have led um, and I guess that was because mum and dad were in a hotel and then this was the, the second job that I went along for and um yeah, and I was just—it was just a job essentially. I wasn't—it uh, wasn't meant to be um, a stepping stone to a career. That all just happened down the track. So, um, in fact, I—I I was planning to go to university and do physiotherapy. Really? And uh, and so I deferred. I got accepted, and then I deferred for a while to have a have a year off. I was relatively young uh, when I matriculated. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was just, just the way. So anything could have happened. I could have been a hotel broker or a physiotherapist, but I finished up in one. Right. And it's been fantastic, of course, for me. <laughs> <laughs> and for many more as well. Um, back in those days, what, what was sort of the wine production like? Was it fairly heavily, you know, geared towards fortified wines or was there, was there a lot of... Um, still wine, yeah. you know, dry wine production? Yeah, well, I was very lucky. Um, Chateraunella was run by a bloke called Colin Hazelgrove, who um, his fairly famous wine name of that era. His brother ran Mildara and he ran Marinella. Um, and uh, he um, also chaired the Australian Wine Research Institute and various things, so you know, smart cookie. Um, and uh, they were really... An, very heavily involved in that early stages in the 60s of making of crafting some really 
um, very smart uh, red wines, Cabernet based or Cabernet Shiraz or Shiraz based. So in those days, we were still making clarets and burgundies and hocks and, and so on. So, you know, the, essentially the clarets were Cabernet Shiraz and the burgundies were Shiraz. And that, and that's tend to be the way the way it worked out, um, but they um, they were they were made you know, I think quite intelligently. The wines were, were you know pretty smart and had uh, French oak barrels for maturation and and so on. And that was sort of the evolving part of the business. Their core business was still making um, flagon wines, um, the two point two five liter I think they were or um, half gallon flagons. Um, and also sherries. So a lot of my work was working on floor sherry production. Uh, dry sherry was a big business, and we used to we had a couple of uh, very popular brands of our own. Plus, also we we made um, we made sherries in bulk, which we sold to um, people like Lindemans and McWilliams on the east coast, and uh, traded that as well mm-hmm. and under a you know long term contract. So mm-hmm. sherry production was pretty big. Mm. And um so this uh, this is before you know the fairly big um, expansion of the Australian wine industry and and you know mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so was wh- what was the um, I guess the the industry like as far as community and um, cooperation? We, we, did you sort of work fairly closely with with people when you when you came back and, and it ended up being a long term prospect? Um. That took a while to evolve um, for me, and probably when I was at Ronella in those early days, I, I guess I was just um, head down, did my job, um, and I was quite a bit younger than all of the rest of the people in the in the business. You know, my my bosses were you know well a good generation or more older, older than I, so that wasn't that that heavily involved. Certainly, they eventually was. Um, Encouraged to get involved in the wine show system, but as an associate judge in Adelaide, and and went on to judge there for uh, a number of years, and that sort of first gave me the intro to the camaraderie aspect of it. And then, fairly early on, we the, the group of the younger groups, sort of the sub twenty fives that I would have been in in that stage, we all started to get together and created our own little little group of friends who would, you know. Um, regularly get together to try all sorts of wines over dinners and um, and so on. So there was a really good uh, local coterie of, um, of uh, McLaren Vile guys and then we tried to spread out to the Barossa and other parts and do, do, um, do you know, similar social engagements. And then um, over time, you know, I guess in, in, that, in that space, once you get involved in that, you start getting involved in the local associations, you know, the Winemakers Association and if there's... Uh, Events being organised. McLaren Vale in those days started the what's the bushing festival, which is still going these days. And um, so generally, we'd all take on the task of either running a running an event and, and whatever, and um, you know form a little subcommittee and finished up. All of us were pretty much all in the same subcommittees <laughs> trying to, and we probably finished up buying half the tickets to go to these things anyway. But but it was a good, you know, very good um, community involvement, uh, and interaction amongst, amongst everybody. And I think it helps everyone grow in confidence and you, you learn from your peers all the time. So it was fun. At that time was, um, was getting into the wine industry, you know, as a winemaker, um, was that considered, you know, a, a, a good career choice? I know that like when sort of the, the eighties and nineties and Australian wine became, um, you know, a 
a big player, particularly in the export markets, and you know the demand for Australian wine increased so that there were a lot more jobs in the industry, and mm. you know, and they wanted qualifications and stuff mm. like that. But but before then, was did did many young people sort of think about getting into the wine industry? Um, I don't think it was high on the high on the radar. A lot of um, f- f- colleagues and friends that I made through wine around that time. Uh, a lot of them came through, not necessarily through Roseworthy Agricultural College in the first instance, but they they had done agricultural science at university. Yeah. And then towards the end of that that ag science thing, which was a broad-based um, um, science degree with an agricultural focus, they started gravitating towards wine. So I think people like uh, Brian Crozer, Bill Hardy, Jeff Weaver, a lot of these guys that's that that was their avenue so their i think their move into wine came a little bit later in their um in their educational path rather than them setting off to uni thinking i'm going to go and uh, graduate with a winemaking degree so the wine industry you know was was a cottage almost a cottage industry in some respects um and i can remember in my early days at ranella when there was the first ex- big expansion in the hunter valley a company like hunkerford hill developed, I don't know, four or five hundred acres of vines around the Bacolban area. And we saw these ads in the in the local in the um, industry mags for a job for a winemaker up there and they're offering ten thousand um, dollars and a house and a car, um, you know, for a package and everyone thinking, Wow, that's that's amazing because the I, mean, I know my boss at the time was on six thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and I was on twenty five dollars a week, yeah. but uh, but the point the point being that suddenly there was an expansion and that opened up a whole a whole lot of new horizons and a whole lot of um, energy in that space. And then I think there was an increase in enrolments at Roseworthy to you know for people to think, oh, there is a career here. It's not just a cottage industry. There's a, you know you can actually carve out a future for yourself. Mm. Mm. When did you get your first sort of head winemaker position? Um. Well, the, the first title uh, <laughs> that was uh, when I went to Lumber in '88 as chief winemaker, and that was when I moved out of McLaren Vale into um, into the Barossa. Was that was that a big step considering you're from like, pretty much from yeah. from McLaren Vale? Yeah, it was a big step. Um, it was yeah, it was. It was there were two steps. One was the actual moving out of your comfort zone into an, into another place. But also, I, it was quite a daunting role, I th- thought, and I wondered at the time whether I had the capacity to do it. But um, I, I, Robert Hill Smith, in particular, who was the um, the, the CEO um, at the time, um, persuaded me to have a go. He thought <laughs> thought I'd really like you to come on board. So I thought, well, with that sort of backing and confidence, you know, I would I would give it a go. But um, I had this sort of bit of lack of confidence due to the fact that I admired Yolumba from afar and admired all the all their um, work in innovation and research and development and and so on. And um, I felt, well, here's a guy who just came up through the lab and you know was going to have to run this show and would I would I have the capability of you know doing it properly? But anyway, um, as I've said to others in the past, that um, there's a lot of great people there, and my job was to try to harness them r- rather than tell them what to do, but just to give them the the space to uh, ex- uh, to expand their skills to the max. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, Yolumba 
of course, you make a you know an amazing mm. range of of wines, mm. uh, not obviously just mm. not just the Barossa, but mm. you know they have mm. some Cunard stuff as well. But um, one of the things that I really admired them for, particularly, was um, the nursery mm. and and yeah. the work in uh, in 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 vine, um, you know, vine breeding yeah. and um, and you know propagation and importation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So was it just? Chief wine, were you just responsible for the wine well, making, no. or did you sort of have yeah. oversight across, yeah. you know, yeah. a lot of other stuff? Look, as I well? started off as chief winemaker, um, and my boss at the time, Peter Wall, was the production director. Um, after Peter retired, um, I assumed that that role, so in charge of all of the production from viticulture, winemaking, through to bottling, packaging, distribution, and so on. We called it um, director of wine. Um, it sounds a bit nicer than director of production in, in, in the wine in the wine space. So yes, I was uh, heavily involved in the um, nursery expansion, um, supporting our viti, viti crew through that. And it's a very interesting thing, you know. It's such a long, t- long-term cycle, high risk. Um, you you t- import a couple of cuttings, and uh, after you get them through quarantine, you have to bulk them up and uh, and get them to a um, to a stage where you can plant out a trial vineyard and whatever. And uh, and then uh, they could turn out to be duds, you know. Uh, it, it takes you ten years to find out. And I know when we were signing the twenty-year agreement with Ontav Inra to be their agent in a in South Australia and other parts of Australia, uh, I kept thinking, you know, I'm not. Do we are we comfortable signing a 20-year agreement? And uh, they said, well, for the first 10 years, you won't have anything to see. So, you know, effectively, it's a 10-year agreement. <laughs> but uh, it is just shows the whole nature of that uh, that thing. And then, of course, when when the wine sales dropped off a little bit um, domestically, or there was, you know, we'd got to the stage where there were enough vineyards planted in Australia. <coughs> excuse me, and um, and you know the, the nursery business in terms of selling vines fell away. It was again a big leap of faith from from the company to keep investing in that space for the next time that people need to start replanting or looking for improved planting material or better clones or whatever. So um, you just keep on spending money in the hope that one day there'll be a, an appropriate return because at one stage a lot of those activities were conducted by sort of semi-government organisations you know the agriculture departments but eventually they moved out of all that so it's left up to private enterprise to make it happen yeah but it's also a private enterprise that has a long-term vision um, of uh, of doing something of value for the whole grape and wine community yeah mm. and and obviously <coughs> they stand to gain um, from from their hard work, you know, whereas uh, a semi-government organisation, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they sort of go, well, we, we have to do it. What, what, what's the incentive for us to keep yeah. doing this? Yeah. Um, at, at that point, um, that was sort of when Australian wine, you know, in the 90s in particular, mm-hmm. um, Australian wine overseas started to really boom mm-hmm. um, and, you know, Yolumba became a, a pretty um, important player um as far as uh, an industry leader um and and i guess at that time you know you would have had a lot of people that were working underneath you who have kind of gone on to um you know whether they're still within uh, the alumbo organization or they've gone up to do other things who are some of the people that you sort of um identified and mentored um that, that have kind of gone on to you know and they've really impressed you Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, mentoring is an interesting thing. I think I think you get mentored two ways. I mean, and some of my some of the people that I 
worked with or that, that you know you could say worked under me had great experience as well and I learned a lot from them people like Alan Hoey and Jeff Linton um, who are both since retired from Mulumba but uh, they were they were there a long time before I arrived and are, are still there um, I recruited um, Louisa Rose um, as an assistant winemaker with a I remember at the time saying um, you know you've the job there as an assistant winemaker, but um, we don't we don't see you've got much chance of a career growth in the next five years because no one's going anywhere. And within a couple of years, you know, she'd, <laughs> things had happened. People had moved moved around, and suddenly she was in some in key roles and went on to now be the chief winemaker or head of head of winemaking, mm-hmm. and has uh, certainly made her mark and continues to make her mark. Um, in a similar vein, there's a whole younger crew there now who um, who are working through working through the system that I wasn't as closely involved with in the early stages, but um, people like uh, Phil Lehman I, do, I still keep in contact with. Um, he came on board there and um, virtually out of um, out of university, well, Phil, Phil did engineering first as his first degree and then I think did a postgrad in, uh, in winemaking. Um, and he came on at the same time as Freya Honan, who was the daughter of uh, David, and, uh, uh, and then she that went left and eventually went back into into Margaret River. But um, oh, so many people to uh, to think about, uh, um, and people. And some of them are off the radar. There's a bloke called Andrew Murphy, who's the virtually the production manager or head head of director of production at uh, Yolumba now. He was um, working as a winemaker when I went there and is still there and eventually took over half of my role when I left. And uh, these, these are people who just work behind the scenes. They're not household names in wine, but they do all that sort of uh, grunt work that you need to do to make a, you know, make organisations work. Well, and some of them become household names if they get their name on the signature. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think I think Murph has got his name on the signature the last one. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that is a big help. It's good that those those things are that people are recognised in that way for their long term contribution. Yeah. Was it um, a, a different um, sort of community in the Barossa? Um, you know, with a slightly different kind of history and and um, or, or what did you find it? With, you know, there were a lot of similarities between the community of Clarenvale. Um. Look, on one level, it's similar, but the Barossa is, um, you know, because of its heritage, um, there is a slightly different dyn- dynamic, and it's more and more in sort of culture and, and language, and possibly even food and and so on. But as communities, um, I think they are both equally positive. Something there is something about the wine sector that brings people together in a in a, in a special way. I think it's the love of the the love of the, the the offer, the love of wine, and the, and the ongoing desire to actually improve wine. So everyone is very supportive of each other and um, not terribly um, secretive about bad issues. We're always wanting to expand knowledge and uh, and make better wine. Um, to some extent, um, you know, the job was fairly all encompassing for me at Yulumber, and so even though I was involved in some of the local. Uh, initiatives in the winemaking committees I tended, apart from my kids going to school and getting involved in weekend sport, I tended to be pretty much, you know, very heavily married to the job for for a, a long a long part of my 25-year tenure there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, at, at what point did you start to get a little bit more involved um, with uh, organisations like 
um, well, I guess what One Australia became, but it was uh, One Australia, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is a, was um, a wine makers federation and uh, grape growers? Not quite. No? Um, so um, what's now the new Wine Australia is an amalgamation of what was Wine Australia. <laughs> right. Um, okay. and, and a group called the the GWRDC, which is the Grape and Wine Research Development Corp. So actually, there were two different statutory organisations, both levy funded, um, and obviously the the RDC is basically a research organisation, and Wine Australia was responsible for market development, export control, um, and, uh, and compliance. And so those two have now been amalgamated into one. Um... Look, I've always been involved over the years in local organisations like winemakers. You know, I was actually on the McLaren Winemakers Committee, then the Barossa Winemakers Committee. Uh, worked with the South Australian Wine Industry Association for a number of years, and those sort of things were always encouraged by our employer, by Ulumba, to get involved in industry matters. Um, what what would um, what what were those associations responsible for? What what what, what were they set up to, to achieve? The local ones, or the or the, the national? Yeah, starting from the local ones and then up to up well, to locals ones. are mainly about they're mainly about local promotion and uh, and also often have a, a slight technical bent. So looking at um, uh, improvement uh, th- things like um, they run the local wine shows and you know promotional events and festivals and all those sort of things so have a fairly local um, bias and of and strongly in promotion although there are always issues like local council regulations or all sorts of things that you know need that could impact on the uh, on businesses capacity to trade so they were all important issues at the state level because we have three tiers of government in the country. You almost need three tiers of industry representation. So sure. at the state level, you've got licensing issues, like health and safety, um, all those um, things which need to uh, be addressed, EPA and so on. So you need a, a strong um, state association that can actually act in the interest of the of their members. But they're advocacy advocacy groups, so they join people join them voluntarily. And then the Winemakers Federation is the national one. I've never been directly involved with Winemakers Federation, but they really have to talk to the federal government about things like tax and health and and market access and those sort of areas. Um, the Wine Australia thing is a little bit different in as much as it's it's uh, compulsorily le- levy funded. So every grower and every winemaker in the country contributes towards that. So uh, it's not an advocacy group. We we can't advocate. We can only provide service to our levy payers. So um, we set out to do that to the best of our ability. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did you get? When did you start to get more involved with Wine Australia? And um, well, I before I left Yulumba, I um, I got onto the board of the old Wine Australia um, uh, and uh, had a couple of years there. Um, and it takes often takes a little bit of time to get your feet in in that space, and then when this move came to um, to form this new amalgamated organisation between the Research Development Corp and Wine Australia, um, somehow osmotically my name sort of came into the into the ring uh, as the as a someone to chair it, um, and I can't exactly say how that happened, but obviously there were people talking among themselves and uh, 
and my name was thrown into the ring. And that, that role is not one that you apply for, but it actually is an appointed role by the minister uh, at the time was Barnaby Joyce, the Minister of Agriculture makes that appointment. So um, uh, it's funny, you know, I didn't have an interview as such. <laughs> and uh, I just get a phone call saying, you know, do you want to chair this thing? And it starts next week. And um, so I took it on as something that I, in my own mind, the way I rationalised it through, James, was that I, I think the with a new organisation, they were looking for somebody that didn't particularly have any um, strong positive or negative bias to one sector or t'other. Hopefully, I don't, you know, I don't have any particular um, barrows to push. Uh, and I've worked with with uh, grape growers and winemakers from all, all spectrums, from the Riverland through to the you know the, the highest cool climate regions in the world and they're just looking for somebody that was hopefully going to be able to um, lead that organisation in a way which only ever had the best interest of our levy powers in mind. Was this um, post-Yulumba? Yes, it was. So it's only a couple of years ago. I left Yulumba, or it's gone very quickly, I left Yulumba at the end of um, at the end of 2012, December 12. And I think this happened, um, I came on in a temporary role from about the middle of 2013. So it's coming up three, three-ish years or three or four years, yeah. And, and, and you left your lumber and um, set up a, a sort of a consultancy business? Oh, look, I left your lumber without a plan, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, deliberately. I didn't, I, you know, I'm not very good at uh, moonlighting. And um, so essentially I... Uh, I was ready after working um, for about 45 years, you know, uh, as an empl employee for a number of organisations, but the last 25 uh, with your lumber. I was just at that stage where um, where I felt that um, um, I just wanted to try something different. I wanted to be self-employed and and perhaps not have that daily responsibility for for all the people that I felt I was responsible for their livelihoods as well as my own. And so I left and decided to have a few months off. Um, and um, I think within a, when early January, my wife and I went off to New Zealand Pino uh, Conference in Wellington, which is a good way to um, to unwind and tasting some lovely Pinots with a lot of interested interesting people. And then essentially it was just uh, waiting to see what might evolve, you know, and whether I would start doing something in my own in terms of a um, brand development or what have you. And I still haven't discounted that. I just haven't got there yet um, because Wine Australia popped up and a few other things popped up. And I, uh, whilst I didn't set myself up as a consultant as such, I was invited to join a couple of uh, wine company boards. Um, right, okay. Small, smaller family businesses. Yeah. And so those along with my Wine Australia and I'm, all, I'm also working with Riverland Wine in their organisation. Okay. So I finished up with uh, four or five, um, you know, reasonably um, uh, worthwhile role, uh, roles and, and jobs and then I do some other ad hoc um, tasting and consulting work for some other people from time to time. So I've got, a you know, a, a nice varied jobs, which is one of the things I was looking for a change, mm -hmm. uh, looking to do something a little bit different. So every day tends to be a little bit different. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been fun. Making any wine for yourself? <laughs> no. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> too, too many other things. Uh, yeah, as I said, I might, one of these days I might, and, um, but I'm actually enjoying working with others who are, who are making wine and, um, and, and doing it well. But... Um, uh, I have a son-in-law who does some wine uh, distribution in 
in Adelaide, and um, you know we've we we occasionally kick around the fact that we might do something together. So yeah. it, it may it may happen. Yeah. yeah. So with the amalgamated um, yeah. Wine Australia, this kind of yeah. newish organisation, yeah. yeah. and and you being mm. brought into to mm. chair it. Um, what was kind of um, the, the sort of the main priorities uh, at the time? Obviously, yeah. this is a few years ago, yeah. so this is post yeah. uh, financial crisis, yeah. and you know Australian yeah. wine yeah. in the export markets in particular yeah. was sort of needed a little bit of yeah. sort of yeah. fr- uh, freshening up. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. What what were, what were your kind of um, first priorities? Well, there were a couple of obligations. So, I mean, you know, some of the very practical stuff is initially bringing two organisations together and making sure the culture is good and that we, you know, that people are uh, harmonised in their thinking. Uh, and luckily, we had some really good people in the organisation who were committed to making that happen. And from day one, we felt it was a very seamless uh, integration of two organisations. Um, and we just kept reminding people that. They are there for our levy payers and and that need a service mentality. And even though two organisations became one on whatever it was, the 1st of July, um, people still needed export licences, they still needed, you know, a help desk and all those sort of things. So that's a very important part of our role. We then had to, we were obliged and we needed to anyway to establish our five-year strategic plan. We have to submit that to the government for approval. And uh, so with a lot of consultation through that phase with our with our stakeholders, um, and I'll, w- eventually, what, how we how we came to actually come up with what we think is a both a simple and a timeless strategy was predicated on the fact that we felt very comfortable, but not complacent, that Australian Australia's wine was in a pretty good space. You know, we, we think our the, the quality and diversity of our wines across the board. Um, is such that it can stand up to international peer comparison uh, confidently. Yeah. Um, uh, even though we know, as I said, there's no complacency. We, we have to, you know, it's a very competitive world out there. So we felt our wine offering was good, but that globally, not so much in Australia, but globally, um, our reputation was more of a good value supplier rather than a high quality or the more everyday rather than special occasion uh, wine offering. So what we we identified that as saying there is a bit of a perception about Australian wine which is slightly out of kilter or mm-hmm. more than slightly, significantly out of kilter with what the reality might be. And so um, we said, well, okay, let's just set about the task over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years of keeping pushing the boundaries and making sure that the world is seeing our best wines and understands them more clearly and over time uh, hopefully gives them the opportunity to be to be presented as special occasion wines as well rather than just good everyday wines we know both both sectors are important so we really just pushed you know our, our thinking is continue to push the concept of putting our best foot forward as much, as often as possible so that um not necessarily in my lifetime, but hopefully in yours and your uh, young son Oliver's <laughs> lifetime, the people will look to Australia as one of the great winemaking nations of the world rather than just another okay winemaking nation. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's really something that um, I, I found quite surprising when, when I was travelling in Europe and I would meet um, young winemakers mm. you know, who, who were stu- mm-hmm. who'd studied or whatever mm. they, and they wanted to go and work vintage overseas. Mm. You know, and I suggested Australia and said, uh, mm. New Zealand sounds exciting. Wow, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think 
for, you know, through the combination of the fact that, you know, New Zealand yeah. is for, for the most part a cool climate wine producing yeah. country. Um, but I think also uh, the way that they've promoted New Zealand and New Zealand wine. Yeah. Um, if you sort of compare those two, I know that Australia obviously produces vastly more wine than yep. New Zealand does, but um, are there, do you think that there are some lessons to be learnt from the New Zealand example and now the perception that New Zealand wine is more premium and people are willing to pay more for, you know, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc or Central Otago Pinot Noir? Um, yeah, look, <clears throat> excuse me, there are always lessons to be learnt from um, from all all nations. New Zealand has a, a terrific offering um, and it's, re- it's a relatively simple proposition and I guess simplicity when it comes to, uh, to marketing is... Um, is you know is an advantage you know because um, we have such a broad array of offering that the, it's it's far more complex to try to explain the Australian proposition. Sure. And so that which is why we need to talk about our regions rather than the country as a whole. We don't we don't purport to the view of brand Australia. We think that's that's too generic. Well, uh, this is something that um, you know, when I was doing my studies at Adelaide mm. Uni, they were talking about the kind of the disconnect between how Australia. Um, particularly in terms of tourism, is mm. promoted, mm. Uh, you know, beaches and outback, mm. um, you know, all sort of warm, sunny kind of mm. things. I think it's pretty easy for people to be confused and to not know that Australia mm. has cool climate wine regions, mm. for example, mm. um, but even, you know, the, the warmer producing regions aren't sort of hot like, no. like you know, Uluru is or something no. like that. Well, I think... Um I think we've got 30, 30 of our 65 wine regions are cooler than Bordeaux. So we'd actually, you know, we've got plenty of cool, yeah. cool regions. Um, people, I think, have, people overseas are surprised we actually ski in Australia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's a hard, it, that is a, that's a challenge. And we continue to think about over time whether we need to have some overarching strategy in that space. But the approach we take is not, <clears throat> we're not pushing wine Australia. We're not pushing brand Australia. We're actually supporting our brand owners, uh, the brands will make the reputation and the, and the country reputation will follow. We're supporting our regions and supporting our people and our personalities and our places. So uh, I think the, in, the, the, new, the new thing is, uh, is the, one of the reasons in Melbourne at the moment with the whole uh, Best 50 Restaurants event and bringing the Somms out is that Tourism Australia have identified that when people have the people's perception about Australia change once they've been here and seen our wine and food culture. And that's become a, a very, very big selling point. They've invested a lot of money in that. And so our challenge is to sort of continue to, and which is why we're engaging with these SOMs from around the world, to get them thinking about the fact that, you know, sh- why shouldn't they have some really fine Australian examples on their lists in their restaurants wherever they are in the in the globe, not as a token, but because they stand up to to scrutiny as some you know some of the great wines of the world. So it, it, I think the more and the fact that the world's best fifty restaurants have come to Australia first time out of out of the northern hemisphere, only the second time out of London, you know that they're not just here for a free trip. They they want to actually come down. They the people in the know know that there's some really wonderful things happening here in that in that whole food and wine space. I think that um, it's, it shows sort of the, the dynamic nature of the Australian mm. wine industry mm. uh, in general um, and, you know, a lot of the hard work that mm. a lot of 
producers and and people involved in the wine industry have um, you know as far as traveling overseas you know mm. going over to the UK going out to mm. the US and promoting the diversity and the mm. I guess the evolution of, of mm. Australian wine whilst still um, you know championing the, the classic Australian mm. wines as well mm. I think that that's sort of um, mm. is has, has helped a lot probably bringing people out here and then they get to see it sort of right in front of them it's probably an exciting opportunity for them yeah and it's a double it's a, it is a double-edged sword i mean there is so much strength and interest in our diversity um, but then that goes against the simple message yeah <laughs> but um but look i think we'll we can navigate our way th- through that and um uh, occasionally, we'll need to sort of come come back and just reinforce our global leadership in Shiraz, for example, because we, you know, it is something that we own, and we shouldn't let that go. Um, but in the meantime, there's so many other things that we do and do so well, and we, we should be able to find niche opportunities for those globally. I think. Yeah, and hopefully they, they get to uh, to eat in some lovely places whilst they're here and see, yeah. you know, the Australian wines in the context of yeah. uh, of, of locally prepared food, but. Yeah. Um, Look, it sounds pretty exciting, and, and I think you know just this week is, is going to make a big difference in the perception of Australian wine, um, certainly uh, around the world. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, I I really appreciate you making some time um, in, during such a bu- busy period. Um, but uh, thank you very much, Brian. Um, if uh, people would like to find out more about what Wine Australia does. Um, there's websites and there's social sure. media accounts yep. so that yep. you'd recommend um, yep. go, f- go, on, go online and check out Wine Australia yep. fantastic yep. And, and, and there's information about uh, events as well programs activities um, blogs all sorts of information and we've just recently upgraded our website but as you'd probably know better than any of us um, those things are uh, they're a continuum yes uh, but we're always looking for content and um, but there's a lot of interesting stories in there about uh, about the whole uh, wonderful world of Australian wine. So, if, mm. so if you if you get a bit tired of um, listening to my podcast, there's plenty more wonderful stories <laughs> you can find on the Wine Australia website, and um, hopefully that'll lead you on other paths as well. But yeah. uh, thanks again, Brian, and um, yeah. I'm wishing you the best of luck. Thanks, James. Week. Been great chatting to you. Cheers. And thank you very much, guys, for listening to this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino, uh, and I really would encourage everyone to show their appreciation to Brian for very generously donating his time and his amazing uh, story on the podcast. Uh, so uh, seek him out uh, via the Wine Australia website uh, or any of their social media channels. Uh, of course, I'd love for you to follow me on social media. At Intrepid Wino is my uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, which has uh, many different editions of Let's Taste, which is uh, where I open up one or more bottles of Australian wine and share my impressions. And it also has some videos about uh, some of the, pre- the experiences I've had in the last couple of years. Uh, of course, all that information is available at intrepidwino.com uh, where you can also um, read about some of my previous experiences and there's lots of different ways of getting in contact with me. Of course, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on uh, any different podcast sharing uh, program or platform, uh, particularly on iTunes. Uh, subscribing means you get access to all uh, 115 plus episodes of the podcast uh, and also means that uh, it's a great way for you to show uh, 
uh, that you are supporting the show by um, by um, leaving a rating and a review uh, and uh, maybe mentioning which your favourite guests. I really do appreciate it when people leave a rating or review because it does help me uh, grow the podcast and get it out to more people. Uh, guys, like I said, I've got more episodes coming soon, uh, some fantastic guests, and uh, I really look forward to uh, hearing your impressions of uh, this and many more episodes of the podcast. But until then, bye. Bye.